Hi, and welcome to Macrina's Key, the podcast where we talk about theology for every single season of life. I'm your host, Sarah Evans. Every fortnight, we discuss systematic theology in bite-sized portions. And along the way, we're learning to see and know God in every season of life, whether we're in the spotlight, on the edge, or being faithful in the mundane. I'm so excited to have you with us. Let's get started. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. We, this week, are going to be doing um, special revelation. So if you listen to the most recent episode at Macrina's Key, I talked about general revelation, which is the um, sort of very broad ways in which God reveals himself to all of his people. General revelation is the means and the mechanism, kind of like the fundamental or the foundation upon which um, God then builds in terms of special revelation as he chooses to reveal himself in more detail and uh, in a manner that can lead to salvation. So just a little recap for you of the difference between general revelation, something that's universally available to all people at all times and in all places, right? So it's not something restrictive like scripture, which is only available to um, certain people in terms of the availability of having scripture, their literacy level, having something in their language, something along those lines, right? So universal revelation would be something more like creation, which is much more broadly available and um, much more accessible to a wide variety of people across uh, time and across the world geographically. But this week, I'm going to transition from that and talk about the other kind of God's self-revelation, and that is a special revelation. One of the big differences between general revelation and self-revelation, excuse me, special revelation, I've kind of already hinted at this, is the fact that general revelation only gives us a very kind of oblique and broad, you might even say a kind of shadowy picture of who God is, right? We might know God um, in terms of being a creator, might know God as being rational or having logic and thoughtfulness, um, you know, the seasons follow one another logically every year. Um, There's a certain order to creation. And so we can see those characteristics, those attributes of God very broadly in general revelation. But we don't know God's name. We don't know who he is. We don't know what he desires for us. We don't know the plan of salvation through something like general revelation. For that, we have to have what's called special revelation, or sometimes this is called particular revelation. So we're going to be talking about that today. Special revelation can draw us into salvation because it can draw us into relationship with the one who is revealing himself. That's one of the big differences between special and general revelation. So special revelation is God's self-revelation to a specific person or persons at particular times and places. And like I said, it promotes the possibility. It enables those people to enter into a relationship with God. Michael Byrd calls special revelation God's unique and supernatural communication of himself. Right? So this is all about God revealing himself to us. 
And this occurs, according to Byrd, through revelatory historical acts like the Exodus and the resurrection of Christ. He also talks about the inspired proclamation of the prophets and the apostles, right? The inscripturated revelation, in Bird's words. He talks about that as being uh, scripture, which is the un- uh, which we understand to be the spiration of God's word through human authors to produce written texts. What I mean by spiration there is that it's in uh, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the the spirit comes upon uh, human authors in order to enable them to produce written texts, which accurately reveal who God is and what he um, wants for us and what is planned for us. So special revelation expands on general revelation. On the other hand, it narrows our interpretation of general revelation, right? So it expands in the sense that now we not only know God exists, we know who that God is. But then as we have something like scripture or more definitively, the person of Christ, our understanding of what we know in general revelation is going to be limited by those things. It's going to be boundaried by those things, right? Those are the parameters within which we interpret general revelation. So it's going to do both an expansion, but also a narrowing of what we maybe have thought about in terms of general or universal revelation. Special revelation is also really, um, I think really beautiful when we think about how it is God's manner of accommodating us. God works within the limitations of our human language, our culture, our experience. He uh, uniquely and personally um, reveals himself to each one of us, right? According to the way he has made us. And so he has this gracious, beautiful condescension with which he treats each one of his creatures in terms of how he works with them and reveals himself to them. That isn't to say that this is something like, um, you know, you do you, that phrase that I feel like is very popular in culture at the moment, or um, it's about my truth. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I am saying is that God truly reveals himself as who he is, not who we think he is, but who he is. And yet he does this in a unique manner that is appropriate to the ways in which he has created each one of us as unique Uh, individuals and image bearers, right? And so he graciously accommodates us and works alongside of us. Special revelation is generally considered to be effective in that it um, brings us into relationship with God, right? So scripture talks about how God's word goes out from him and it does not return empty or void. It's effective. It creates something in us. It generates relationship. So when God reveals himself to us, it's going to cause something in us, right? It's going to cause a new relationship with him, whether that's an antagonistic relationship because we reject that revelation or it's a positive relationship because we embrace God for who he is and we choose to love and serve him and um, be allied with God and, and his ways and walk in his ways. And so those are some different characteristics of special revelation. There are a variety of places in both the Old and New Testament where we see um, special revelation. So scripture itself 
is one form of special revelation. There are a variety of um, kind of categories um, that fit into this sort of overarching idea of special revelation. Things like visions, right? That's available to particular people in particular moments. Um, Scripture, right? That's available to particular people in times and places. Uh, Christ in the incarnation, right? That's the definitive self-revelation of God. And it's also an instance of particular revelation. Um, And things like prophecy or um, a word of God, that's a form of special revelation. And so all of these combine to uh, fit into this category that we call special revelation. And then within those, we see specific instances, right? So in scripture, there are um, instances of special revelation in the Old Testament and then very clearly in the New Testament. Uh, one of the best examples, well, maybe not best examples, one of the earliest examples of special revelation in the Old Testament is in Genesis 12, when God calls Abram. So God reveals himself to Abram by speaking with him, right? So there's a particular person that God is entering into a relationship with, and this happens at a particular time and place. God directs Abram, and through Abram, the readers of Scripture in future generations, he directs Abram's vision forward to Christ, who's going to bless all the nations, right? So God promises to give Abram a people, a nation. Uh, He promises to give Abram a land, and he promises to bless all people through Abram's family. And we know now that that was Christ. That's the Messiah that God is speaking of. And so God directs Abram's vision towards himself through Christ. In Exodus uh, 3.14, God shows himself again, this time to Moses. This is even more particular, more specific, because he reveals to Moses his personal name. This is a huge deal in the ancient Near East. To know the name of a God was to um, enter into a very particular kind of relationship with that God. It was um, almost kind of vulnerable on the part of that God. Um, to reveal their name because names were associated with having power. If you knew someone's name, you could have power over them. Um, And so when Adonai reveals his name to Moses, that is entering into a uh, real intimate relationship with Moses and through Moses, the people of Israel. So it's a very specific kind of instance of God's self-revelation. Regularly throughout the Old Testament, uh, the prophets showcase God speaking directly to his people, to Israel. He reveals himself. He reveals the future. He reveals promises that he has made to their forefathers, to them, to future uh, generations. He also reveals his judgments, his will, his desires, right? And so... And there's this sense in which God is um, progressively revealing more and more of who he is. He's speaking more um, intimately, more specifically about himself, about his desires for his people, and about what he expects of them and what will occur in the future. Uh, The prophets also speak against the nations around Israel. And so we can see that God's self-revelation is not just for his people. It's also for the surrounding nations, which we should keep in mind, right? As Christians, we need to remember that God doesn't just reveal himself for our sake. It's for the sake of the entire world, right? And so it's our job to be 
good representatives of who God is and to carry forth that message for the salvation of the nations, right? Um, I, I just, I think that's so significant for us to keep in mind that God has revealed himself not only to us, but also for others and to others. In scripture, interestingly, um, there is this use of the language of the word of God and the word of the Lord. And there are various uses of that throughout scripture. Often it's talking about commands or messages from God. Uh, it might be talking about prophecy. It might also be talking about scripture, right? The uh, collection of the books of the Bible. In the New Testament, this takes on a slightly different character because it's talking about the gospel. What is the word of the Lord? It's the gospel that is coming to God's people. And even more intimately and more specifically, the word of the Lord or the word of God or the word is Christ, right? We see this in John 1 where it says, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is the word of God. And so again, we see there's that idea of the broadening of general revelation, that God is a relational and that he speaks to us. But then there's this narrowing of the interpretation. How does God speak to us? He speaks to us through the son, through the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. And then as we look at this language of the word of God or the word in scripture, we can come to see that there's a sort of triangular or triadic um, nature of this idea of the word. What I mean by that is there are three kind of uses or instances of the word. So there's Jesus, scripture, and the gospel. And all three of those are going to be working together. And that's what I'm going to talk about and focus on a little bit more um, in the next bit of this podcast. And I I don't want to um, just negate or put to the side other instances of God's special revelation to us, right? Prophecy, scripture, visions, and things like that. But I want to really focus on this idea of Christ the Word and the triadic nature of that idea of the Word being scripture, the gospel, and Christ. Because Special revelation, as it builds on general revelation, is intended to bring us into relationship. It's intended to draw us into the relationship of the Trinity, right? We get to share in Christ's relationship with the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so if that is the goal of God's self-revelation, then I think it's important for us to focus on uh, the very person through whom he does this, Christ himself, and the way that it has shaped in, um, in the gospel and in scripture, which kind of encapsulates uh, the witness to both of those. So we're going to talk first about the word incarnate. What I mean by that, of course, is Jesus, Jesus Christ. And there are a variety of texts um, in the New Testament to bear in mind, uh, but especially in the gospels, right? And I've already referenced that passage quite famously in John 1. Um, where the word was with God and the word was God. And so the word, God's spoken word, the word by which he creates the universe in Genesis is going to come and tabernacle, going to come and dwell among his people. So what does it mean then to say that Jesus is the word of God? 
Well, Jesus is God's speaking to us, literally and metaphorically. Jesus is the word of God in that he's the one who comes from God. He is God and he comes and he speaks to us and he reveals the father's will and he reveals the father's heart as he speaks to us. So God is personally and genuinely present in the word who is Christ. And God the Father is also working through Christ as he reveals himself in the work of Christ. So every time we encounter Christ the Word, we are encountering God himself. There's um, a French uh, philosopher, theologian named Jean-Louis Chrétien. Um, I really, his work is really beautiful. He has um, a book called um, The Call and the Response that I would really recommend. It's it's difficult to read through. It's quite um, poetic and philosophical at the same time. And so it presents a number of challenges, but it is so rich and and just so lovely. And I've read um, commentators on Chrétien as well. One of uh, those interpreters being Stephen DeLay. And he says this about Chrétien's understanding of Christ as the word. Basically, Chrétien observes that we speak, or we might say we write and we sing, because we feel summoned either by something or someone. And we feel summoned to respond in word. In speaking, something has already reached out to us. It calls into the silence. It breaks the silence and calls to us. And so we speak, um, according to Chrétien, only for having been called by what there is to say. That is Jesus Christ, right? Christ speaks into the nothingness in creation. He speaks into the nothingness, which is our sin and our deadness in our sin. And he calls us to life. And so then we are summoned to respond. And we respond in word, in singing, in music, in art. Because of the prior call, the beauty which has called to us in Christ. Um, I love the way that Stephen DeLay um, really kind of neatly summarizes Chrétien in those words, um, that we feel summoned by something or someone, and then we respond in word. Then we have, so that's the word incarnate, right? That's Christ. Christ is the definitive example of God's self-revelation. I mean, there's just nothing, there's nothing more particular, nothing more specific, nothing more intimately revealing of who Christ is. Well, not, excuse me, of who God is than Christ. So there is never going to be a better example of who God is than Christ because Christ is God. And so when we talk about the word incarnate, we're talking about God's speech, God's will to create God himself coming in the person of Christ. Then, of course, scripture also talks about the written word. Um, We might think of 2 Timothy 3, um, where it talks about the word of God is useful for rebuking and teaching and edifying. Um, Also, 2 Peter, um, in in that letter, Peter talks about scripture um, being important, and he also even specifically references Paul's writings as scripture and says that they're challenging some of them, although... To be fair, I think Peter has some quite challenging texts to understand as well. Um, But scripture really uh, is another important locale of God's self-revelation, right? This is the, the sort of means by which God reveals himself 
reveals who Christ is, right, that the Gospels capture and encapsulate the story of Christ's time on earth for future generations to read and understand who he is and to come to know him. And then there are other passages in scripture, right? We don't only have the gospels. We have Christ's prayer book in the Psalms. We have the stories, the language, the speeches of the prophets intended to help us understand the ethics of God, what um, it is to follow in God's way and to live as God would have us do. Um, We have the... um, you know, the wisdom literature, we have um, poetry, judges, and um, the narratives about the kings in both Kings and Chronicles and even in Samuel, right? And so we can see there's this ongoing discussion of who God is, what it is means to share in his life, and what the redemptive narrative of history is. So as we are looking at all of that, it's important for us to ask how does biblical authority function? Well, biblical authority is authoritative because it's speaking of God and because we trust that scripture is accurately speaking of God. The written word by the power of the spirit participates in God's work in order to save by drawing us into the relationship that Christ has with the father. And we are then saved by the power and work of the Holy Spirit as the spirit often works through revealing uh, God to us and illuminating God um, through the use of scripture. Scripture is also authoritative because it tells the definitive story of God and not just the story of God, but the story of the universe, right? So the story of God includes the story of the universe. This isn't just definitive and authoritative for one people group um, throughout time. This is the story of reality because it is all caught up in who God is, right? And so it reveals the truth about ourselves, about our need for Christ, about the state of the world, right? When we speak of the story of God, scripture is claiming that this is for the entirety of the world. It's not just about the church or the people of Israel. There's this universality then to the text as it reveals the nature of the entire cosmos and the cosmos's nature or need for redemption as part of the story of God, right? And so this isn't just like one worldview that is an equal among many. Um, This is the definitive way of understanding the world and reality according to scripture. Um, We should then be reminded that through scripture, God speaks to us and that when we submit to the authority of scripture, it will also involve the transformation of um, ourselves through the renewing of our minds, right? So we can see through scripture that there's a need for change, for redemption in each uh, human person and in the cosmos more broadly. And so as we submit to that authority, uh, it's important for us to recognize that we will be transformed. We will experience transformation through the work of God. Um, And that will occur through the renewing of our minds and the renewing of our souls and um, the renewing of our entire selves, the more we engage with God through scripture. God's power um, in Christ by the spirit is offered to all who ask. Right. So when we are reading scripture, I don't mean this to be um, used abusively, right? Um, As if our authority is greater than that of Christ. 
but we are given the privilege of participating in Christ's work and in God's work. Um, And that privilege, of course, requires the power of God. And that is going to come to each of us the more we engage with God through scripture, through reading scripture, knowing his heart, knowing who he is. And so we will become more like God the more uh, that we read about him, right? We become like what we worship. We become like what we spend our time focused on. And so we need to learn to read scripture, to understand scripture, to hear scripture proclaimed in our gatherings in order to think faithfully as Christians and asking God to reveal himself so that we might participate in his work and in what he has done for us and what he is continuing to do on our behalf. Okay, so how with all that in mind, do we submit to biblical authority? Sometimes it's really clear, right? So the 10 commandments, that's pretty obvious. There are commands about what to do and what not to do. That's very um, easy to kind of see. This is how I submit to what God wants. There are also commands throughout scripture to be thankful, or there's Paul's exhortations in uh, the New Testament not to engage in sexual distortions, but to set our minds on what is good and what is beautiful, right? There are very clear instances throughout scripture of what we should do and what we should not do. But sometimes there are indirect aspects of biblical authority. There are things where questions aren't answered specifically. Um, I think a lot of this can really clearly come down to, um, or not clearly come down to, but uh, can clearly be seen in two topics, one being economics, the other being war. I'm probably going to get myself into a lot of trouble um, with this next one um, because I know that a lot of my listeners are in the U.S. Okay, so, but we'll just go for it. So the U.S. is a capitalist country. And most Americans really pride themselves on being a capitalist country. Scripture doesn't say that capitalism is better than socialism. It doesn't say that socialism is better than capitalism either. I've lived in both economic systems, and I can tell you pretty authoritatively that they're good and bad of both. My husband and I were just talking about our healthcare situation in a socialized country and in a capitalist country. And there are benefits and negatives of both. So sometimes it's not clear what is um, scripturally, you know, well, I think we could say it's scripturally clear what is desirable in an economic system. How we might uh, implement that is not always clear, right? So something like socialism might remind us of the Old Testament vision for the year of Jubilee. It might also um, remind us of the commands in the New Testament and the Old Testament to care for widows and orphans, right? Or the example in Acts 2, where um, everything is being shared equally. People are selling their possessions in order to give and share out things equally. That sounds kind of like socialism, right? Everyone's on a very basic level of being taken care of. But then capitalism kind of sounds like Paul's exhortation in his letters to the church in Thessalonica that those who don't work don't eat. And so we're all expected to be 
doing our own thing, pulling our weight. Proverbs kind of seems to point to that as well. And so there's this kind of tension in scripture where sometimes it's really easy for us to say our system is the best and it's clearly biblical, but actually when we take a step back, it might not be. Socialism has lots of problems because of sin. Capitalism has lots of problems because of sin. And so it's important for us to look at scripture, hear the word of God, and then take a step back and say, is the problem here really the economic system or the government system? Or is it bigger than that? Maybe the problem here is actually that human sin. And so as we look at the authority of scripture and what it has to say about humans and who we are and our need of God, we recognize that no economic system is going to be perfect because they're all made up of and run by human beings, none of whom are perfect except for Christ. And so then we can indirectly submit to biblical authority as we go, okay, I live in X system, whether that's for government or economics. And what is my call as a Christian? My call is to live faithfully to Christ, to be grateful for what I have, to be content, to not covet, and then to live sacrificially and generously with my neighbors and with the church in particular. And so we can look sometimes at um, ways in which we might not have a clear, direct command in scripture, but having an understanding of God's heart can direct us to good, um, good ends in terms of how we act that out. So the same could be said about something like war, um, certain aspects of medical ethics, etc., um, where there aren't clear commands, right? And so we have to take this step back and say, what does it mean to act faithfully as a Christian in this situation? And sometimes that's really easy. Sometimes that's harder because we have to disassociate some of our cultural biases from that. And that can be really challenging. But even without direct commands, we are still called to be responsive. And we are still responsible to God's authority and his intent, which is revealed in scripture. And so we are still called to follow in God's ways, even when that might be murky and gray, and we don't necessarily know how to do that. So we have to think faithfully and holistically in order to do that. One final kind of aspect about scripture that I think is really important for us to think about is how do we have confidence in the scriptures, right? If we're going to submit to these um, writings and assume that they're authoritative, then we need to have confidence that they are authoritative, that what they speak to us is uh, true and accurate and valid. So it's really important for us to have a proper confidence in what scripture says about God and about us and about the nature of the world, right? Some of this, we could say we have uh, reliable historical evidence of various events, right? There are many things in scripture where they can be defended um, archaeologically and historically, right? So there's that biblical data, which is easily defensible in some aspects. There's also a uh, internal testimony. This sometimes feels like a circular argument, right? Second Peter, where Peter says that Paul's writings are scripture. And so we can see that there's this assumption internally within the canon um, and that it is testifying to itself, 
Um, but there is that internal kind of coherency, which is helpful for having confidence in the scriptures and that ongoing attestation of scripture's veracity, right? That we can trust it and we can know God through this. Another aspect is that there's this overarching and summary experience of the power and work of the risen Christ. So we need to remember that scripture is God's story and that God is the one who validates its authority. Some of that validation, we might say, can be seen in, like I said, the coherency, the consistency of the overarching narrative of Scripture. Some of that also is something we have to trust in by um, our experience of God. So kind of going back to that issue of God um, accommodating us and working with us is the aspect of how we can know and trust Scripture and the Spirit witnesses to our hearts the truth, the veracity, the reliability of scripture. And so there is also that kind of personalized aspect of how we submit and have confidence in the scriptures. I do want to say that though scripture is reliable and defensible, that isn't to say there aren't questions at times. And I want to say it's important that we don't treat the scriptures like a history textbook in the kind of modern enlightenment sense. Scripture wasn't written for that kind of goal, and we need to be aware of that. For instance, the gospel authors include differing events, right? And some of them reorder various events in order to highlight a particular theme of their message um, or to point something out to the audience that they are writing for in their um, original instance. So Matthew is really intent to highlight Christ as the new Moses. He's the new lawgiver. And so he is going to reorder um, speeches of Christ and events in order to highlight that, um, both through what Christ says and what Christ does. John um, really focuses on the glorified Christ, right? Um, really high Christology is what we call that, that he has this intense view of Christ's glory um, and that everything is kind of filtered through that. And so the way he talks about Christ, the uh, way he orders the events of Christ's life in his ministry is going to highlight that, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Luke is a little bit more probably chronological because his intent is to do something more like and kind of early biography, you might say. There wasn't that exact genre of text. And so don't um, go around saying that Luke wrote a biography of Christ. But his is a bit more chronological. It's a bit more methodical. And we think that Luke was a medical practitioner. So that kind of makes sense when you think about his personality and what he's trying to get across. And so there's a sense in which some of these things are sort of movable, but that doesn't impede them from still being true and reliable. It doesn't preclude genuine historicity, right? There, um, it is simply to say that at times a strict chronological approach isn't the intent of scripture. The message of who God is, is the intent of scripture. So there is a sense in which we have archeological evidence that supports many events described in scripture. And the events of scripture are then defensible as real historical occurrences. But it is also to say 
there are some gray areas and there are some things where we might have questions and that's okay because the goal of scripture isn't to be like your history textbook um, that you had in high school on the history of your particular nation, right? That's not the intent. And so it's okay that the texts then function somewhat differently. All right, my friends, I'm looking at the time here and it is about 35 minutes after when I started. So next time we come back, we'll do a little bit more on, um, a little bit more on special revelation, talk a little bit more about the written word and then how, uh, we bring together the idea of the written word in scriptures and the gospel with the incarnate word of Christ, right. And the relationship between, um, that kind of triadic understanding of what is the word. And I think that will be a really great episode and I'm looking forward to that. It's, um, I think when I learned about that idea in seminary, it was really eye-opening and life-giving for me about how to think through, um, Christ's relationship with the word that testifies to him. So I'm looking forward to that. Um, that next episode will be my last one for a wee while. Um, you know, I've just been looking at our life lately and it has been really quite, um, chaotic to be honest. We moved internationally, um, as you may know, back in March, um, we had a baby in June. We moved again in August. Um, I am teaching the most classes I've ever taught before at a graduate level, which is really exciting and has been really lovely and wonderful. But I'm also doing some of my first um, in-person lectures, and that has required a lot of prep work. And it has just been a lot for our families to be juggling. And I'm recognizing that um, even as I look at how many episodes I've done, that there has been there have been some real gaps, guys. Um, I was doing every week and then I went to fortnightly and then lately it's been more like once a month and I want to be consistent and I want to do this well because learning theology, learning about God is so important that I want to serve you well and do things well for you. So I'm going to do one more episode on special revelation and then I'm going to take a break. I'll probably hop back in um, for something in the season of Advent because it's one of my favorite seasons in the church calendar. Um, But then I'm going to kind of take a wee break and do a lot of writing and sort of relaunch um, after Advent. Until then, I would love if you would uh, do a couple of different things for me. If you would leave a review um, on wherever you listen to this, whether that's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or somewhere else, um, it would be great to have you leave a review because that is one of the best ways to get the word out about this podcast. And I really want to serve the church and serve um, people who don't have access to higher education. And so that would be really helpful for that mission. Second, I would love if you would drop me a line with um, a question, something that you would like us to explore or talk about, or even a way in which we could do that. So I have a Patreon account that I'm looking at revamping slightly. I do have some extra episodes on there for people who are um, Patreon supporters, but I've been looking at other ways of um, engaging with all of you. So I didn't know um, if there are any things that would be really helpful for you, maybe doing a book club on a specific 
specific topic or a specific text then we could read through together and then have a live session um, through Zoom or through Patreon, something along those lines, maybe once a month. Um, so if you would leave a review and then if you would email me through the website, I would love, love to hear from you about what would be most beneficial for you in growing your understanding of who God is so that you might worship him more fully and walk in his ways to the glory of his name. All right, friends, I'm looking forward to next time, a little bit more on special revelation, and I'm really looking forward to hearing from you. Thanks. I'm so glad you joined me for this episode of Macrina's Key. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps others find the podcast. And that's the goal here at Macrina's Key, to share the gospel and make theological education available for the benefit of the church in every season. If you want to get in touch, head on over to the website, macrinaskey.com. You can also check out the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash macrinaskey. There you'll find exclusive episodes and materials for members. I love hearing from listeners, so please sing out and get in touch. Until next time, God's grace and peace to you. Thank you.